0: Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the editor-in-chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill. and this episode, we'll hear from Tyler Clay, who's a medical student in the UNC School of Medicine. We'll start with hearing him read his story, Net Carbs. We hope you enjoy.
1: This is Net Carbs. I don't think you quite understand my role here. I understand your confusion. Honestly, it makes a lot of sense, seeing as I am clothed in the same logo emblazoned, sweat-wicking sport polo that your executive weight loss physician wears on a daily basis. And yes, the shirt is tucked into a pair of standard gray slacks, which, I understand, give off some semblance of professionalism and knowledge of medically related things, despite not having a degree to my name. But the wardrobe, I can explain, because as you can see, I am the only male employed here other than the doctor himself, while the rest of the staff, as you and every other power napping, hypermasculine CEO on my patient list, have not so discreetly made yourself aware, are women of varying heights but unvarying bust size, made all the more obvious by our dress code, which grants me this performance professional combo, while puzzlingly denying even the phlebotomist a reprieve from heels. And your confusion is likely heightened, because I am, of course holding a bright red medical chart with your name on it, and I am, as always, holding two syringes, one testosterone, one vitamin B12, each of which will be soon emptied into your ash, cheek, and stomach fat, respectively. You see the testosterone, that's the one I give from behind, pants at your ankles, hands supporting your weight on the table because your glute muscles must be relaxed for it to go in without pain, the thick juice of vitality that I silently 18-gauge into your hairy ass, Silently, of course, because I am comparatively young and full of vitality, and you personally choose to express embarrassment of your ectopic masculinity with stoicism, unlike the others who do so by poking fun at themselves, or by droning on about the weather, or that one guy who takes his gun out of his back pocket before pulling down his trousers. And the other, vitamin B12. That's the one that you have been told burns fat. And look how gloriously neon red the liquid is. You can almost convincingly smell the calories smoke away in a chemical blaze. But it's not even these injections or my wardrobe that I imagine really gives you the wrong impression about my role in your health optimization plan. What must truly have led you to disclose that horrible news to me is how inextricably integrated into your daily routine I have become. The hour-by-hour meal planning that I provide to you. The HIPAA protected messages that I must contractually answer any given minute of the day through our trademarked iPhone app. You know the messages. How many more carbs can I have today? None. Are beans keto? No. It's my wife's birthday today. I had cake. Sorry. Understandable. Pack jerky before parties, like we talked about. But of course I already knew you had cake, as I have access to your food logs through the app. A strange diary written in net carbs eaten and ounces of water drunk. Meals skipped for work and meals binged for better reasons. Steps taken and days spent sleeping by a hospital bed. A picture of your life in which I get to fill in all the missing pieces. The meals I think were eaten with your family. The romantic dinners with your wife. The after-hour drinks with your employees. The after-hour drinks alone. All of this narrated by your occasional commentary when you choose to make notes. It was my birthday. Friend in town, sorry. Got bad news, fell off the wagon. And then on top of all of this, you see me so often, weekly for your injections, our secret passing off of vitality. And after those, I ask you how your week was, about any unforeseen complications in the strict diet devoid of carbs mandated for you. And maybe it is that, the weekly venting about how hard it is to balance the diet with your business, your children, your friends, and of course everything going on with your wife. Maybe it is those brief moments between the injections and your weigh-in that made you think that I am the right person to whom you should reveal the results of your wife's biopsy. Her prognosis, the wrong kind of weight, the kind that can't be removed like your belt before hopping on the scale, weight that can't slough off with fewer carbs or nutritional labels or the right type of snacking, something an injection won't fix or prevent. So yeah, maybe there was a bit of silence before I could figure out what to say to you. To just say, I'm so sorry, and then without skipping a beat to tell you to hop on the scale, taking everything out of your pockets first, wringing almost every last drop of weight from your body before submitting to my judgment of the life you lived that week. Disciplined or not, that's all in the number. That there is my job, to look at the number and to tell you what to do to make it lower when I see you again in seven days, when I will greet you once again and ask, how was your week? Even though I already know.
0: You can read that story and the rest of the fall 2020 issue of the journal on our website. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about this one.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me.
0: So I don't want to call this like the wild card of the issue because that seems a little insincere, but it is such an inventive piece. And I think it really does stand out in the journal because of that. The narrator has such a specific, strong voice and it very much hits the ground running with this person's job and all of the baggage that it implies. I'm curious, where did the ideas for this piece come from? What inspired you?
1: There were a few things that kind of fed into everything that's here. I did work at a place very similar, or I would say exactly like um, what I describe in this story. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting thing. There's so many different types of medical practices, but uh, certain ones cater to a certain population. And I personally had a a troubling time with targeting a certain segment of the population with services that far exceed what people who are like less advantaged are getting in like more traditional medicine, medical practices or and, and and other like models. And so that that was part of it. There was like an air of misogyny as well. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I felt as angry about it as the narrator of this piece did, but Part of what I wanted to do was show that the narrator was very doubtful about what the narrator was doing. And that kind of led into some of the later parts where the narrator is obviously feeling torn about the services he's providing. And so I, th- I thought that was a way to like feed in some of those frustrations that I felt. And I, I thought that it helped the piece a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's definitely another side of medicine that you might not initially think of. Like, it's not a hospital setting. Can you explain the identity and, I guess, the job description of the narrator to give a little more context?
1: The narrator is like a nutrition slash lifestyle coach.
0: Part of what is interesting about the narrator, as you said, is that it's not a doctor. So he's occupying this liminal space as a kind of medical authority without that certain qualification. How do you think that impacts the caregiver patient relationship?
1: It was it's interesting because I don't think it comes through in the piece but the location that I was working in didn't have like a medical feel at all it was set up like a mm-hmm. spa. Yeah. There's so many like aspects of medicine in this, like all this like data feeding into the, about the person's life, feeding into the decisions that are made and things like that, like constant vigilance over every aspect of like the person's intake and things, constant like weekly check-ins. I guess it's interesting because there's one part of how I, as I'm a medical student, I as a future doctor would love to have like the ability to see people that I'm treating weekly and having these weekly conversations with them. And it's interesting that in this position, the narrator has that privilege to provide care. That would be great if every person could get that care. But it's, you know, it's not treating illness, it's maximizing vitality and things like that. So it's interesting that the narrator does not have any sort of credentialing.
0: As a medical student, why were you interested in continuing to tell a story from that other perspective?
1: There's some aspects of medicine that going through medical school and at the time I wrote this, I still had very limited like clinical experience in traditional medicine. But what I had seen was all these data points. For instance, if you're in the hospital, your blood pressure is taken every two hours or so. And more often, if you're more sick, the amount that you urinate, the number of times that you defecate, those are all recorded. Whether or not you ate breakfast or dinner and the exact proportion of that meal that you ate. That's recorded. There's all this data that's feeding into like the medical decisions that are made. And in contrast, I think as we focus more and more on that hypervigilance that we have over patient intake and all these vitals and things, the less we're paying attention to the things that are actually going on in people's lives. For instance, you know, someone's in the hospital and they're very sick and we do need to know what their blood pressures are. So we know how many pressers to give them or things like that. That is important. But maybe we're paying less attention to the fact that they don't have family coming to see them. You know, outside of like coronavirus, like I've seen that, like no one's visiting this person. Why is nobody visiting this person? Why is nobody checking in on them? I mean, I think that's more important to me. And interestingly, the narrator in this story has all of these data points on this person's life, and there is something more going on. And just because of what the person's job is, when that like weight is finally given to the provider, they don't know what to do with it. Their job is the numbers, essentially. And I think that's reflected in not necessarily what we're taught before we get into the clinical side of medicine, like when we're in our traditional like, book learning parts, but that's what it becomes when you do get into the clinical side. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad if you don't know what someone's blood pressure was that day, but no one ever asks you know, if you know their daughter's name, things like that.
0: It's really interesting because I think that's something that we try to talk about a lot in the health humanities is looking beyond the numbers, looking at the people. What I think a strength of this story is, is that you're doing so much with it. There is all this commentary on kind of medicalized masculinity and hyper-masculinity. And by the end, what I did take from it is this question of the patient-caregiver relationship how much should be shared, what that means. What does the combination of all of these different topics bring to the piece?
1: I, yeah, there's definitely a lot of talking about like masculinity and the air of misogyny and the practice the narrator's in at the beginning. I've thought a lot about like masculinity as someone who appears and has been pressured their entire life to, you know, take hold of the traditional idea of masculinity and, you know, integrate it into who I am you know, I'm constantly trying to think of how to like push against that and kind of dismantling that within myself. Mm -hmm. There's something about masculinity. It's like a front. It's a means to like protect yourself from feeling or like addressing certain things within yourself. If I am big and can clobber things that are in my way, I don't need to necessarily check in on how I'm doing or how I actually feel about things. And similarly, if... A provider is focusing on the numbers and maximizing somebody's length of time that they will continue to live for the rest of their life. That's different from getting to know them as a person and maximizing the quality of whatever years they have left. I think there's a little bit of an interplay there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The more I do think about this piece, the more that I can keep drawing different connections on all the different topics that it's talking about. I think it's really just great in that way. Another part of the structure is the fact that apart from that first line, I don't think you quite understand my role here. The whole piece is one sentence, which maybe sounds a little different on the page versus uh, through the podcast. Why did you choose to write it like that?
1: For me, the narrator wants to talk to the patient who comes to the forefront at the end of the piece, wants to address these things with the patient, but there is a divide between their duties and, you know, what they want to do. And so there's a certain amount of doubt that the narrator has both about what they're doing in general and what they should be doing in terms of this patient, and I guess more so like with their life at this time. For me, having it as one sentence, like, the narrator is not giving themselves room to really like consider anything outside of what they're actively thinking about at that time. They're not letting room in for for themselves to really think about the ideas. And I think keeping it as one sentence mirrors that because it doesn't give the reader a second to question what's going on. Uh, once I kind of started writing it as one sentence, I couldn't stop and. <laughs> When editing it and being asked to edit it as not one sentence, I couldn't do it. So,
0: Yeah, there's some creative grammar, but I really do like (laughs) it as one sentence because it's that stream of consciousness. Like you are in the ride of what the narrator is thinking and you can't step out of it.
1: There's a book that's written this way. It's, I don't know, it's like 800 pages or something and it's all one sentence. Wow, And I have not read that book, but it was laying on a friend's coffee table a few years ago, and I picked it up and looked at it, and it kind of planted a seed yeah. that that also played into it. I want to give credit to Lucy Elman's Duck Newberry Port.
0: That'll go on my reading list.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so as a med student, and you mentioned maybe getting a little more experience, more hands-on experience, have you been inspired by working in the hospital or working with patients in your writing? And maybe have you written nonfiction as well?
1: Interestingly, at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine, we have an Asheville campus, and I don't know that it's necessarily specific to our campus, but we have a very like integrated ethics and uh, humanism component to our education, mm-hmm. um, and we're encouraged to reflectively write at least once a month. I've been given many opportunities and deadlines to um, have to have to have something to write down. I would say yeah. things have been very fast right now and busy, so it's a good excuse to like take a pause and kind of reflectively write on things. So yeah, I have been doing some writing, and similarly to this piece, a lot of it is not is fiction that's very much based on what I've been through or seen or observed, and a few more like advocacy pieces that are like yeah. directed towards someone.
0: What do you think is the value of discussing questions of healthcare in narratives and specifically in fiction?
1: I think there's two ways to think about it. And I'm going to forget to talk about the second one. So if you could remind me um, there's, there's reflective writing, which as I said before, gives you a moment to take a pause and it's very easy, especially in medical school because of the way Medicine has structured itself, and you know, physicians are very busy. So, kind of once the whole process starts, you don't get a moment to stop unless you intentionally take one. And so, for me, like writing these things down enables me to kind of make the connections between different ideas that I've had, kind of like we talked about in the piece. I mean, mm-hmm. even just talking about them now, I did not connect the masculinity thing to, I, I didn't think about as much the masculinity thing in the piece. Yeah. And then, well, I guess that was the second part. If you're writing things down, you are finding new things out about yourself and the way you think about things, and that enables you to make a change and kind of see the holes in your own logic or see your own anger and you know other emotions you may be feeling that maybe you didn't know were there beforehand. Mm-hmm. Like reading back on this, I was obviously an angry person at the time, <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I wrote it, I was not, and it was not a, not as angry about the experience that I had. So it also helps you come to terms with things you might have seen and been through, because you do see some very questionable things in terms of what people go through and the way that people treat the people going through things.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's valuable to explore those emotions, even if you are pushing pushing the anger and seeing where does that come from? Why am I feeling this way? Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this. I think this really is one that benefits from discussion and benefits from further thought.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, too.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find Tyler's story and the rest of the Health Humanities Journal's fall 2020 issue on our website linked in the show notes. Or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Tyler for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.